0: Hey everyone welcome to the scripture study project our podcast that gives you a fresh and faithful study of the scriptures that will renew your excitement for your own personal study and help you passionately teach what you are learning to others i am zach this is and, my wife
1: oh i was gonna give my <laughs> that was supposed to be smooth me hurrying cut in and say and i'm krista i
0: like it it's because we're Jazz recording hands. on other sides we, we swapped sides of
1: Our recording studio. Our recording
0: studio. (laughs) You're on the right and I'm on the left. And usually I'm on the right and you're on the left.
1: I'm very confused today.
0: Uh I don't know what anyone else's day (laughs) looks like, but we had a foot and a half of snow today
1: Um,
0: for the first time, I think in over 15 years, um, Salt Lake School District canceled classes and our local school district here canceled classes. And we spent the entire day outside playing in the snow and freezing and sledding. And uh, it was awesome. It was awesome. So we're jazzed up and excited to record an episode because we didn't do anything else meaningful (laughs) all day long.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right? Um, We hope your day was equally as fun and meaningless. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It was very meaningful. It was very meaningful. Family time. Anyway.
0: Um, For our study tip this week, um, we're continuing on our study tip from last week. Last week was part one. This is part two. Last week, if you want to go back and listen to it, was... All about uh, believing in your learners, whether that's your children or your Sunday school class um, or just yourself even, believing in them as capable learners, understanding that they have God-given gifts and revelations that enable them to be powerful members of your study group or of your class or whatever it is. However, the balancing principle for that is that we also need to be capable teachers, um, I This discussion came up in uh, some of my recent school classes that I'm going through for my current degree, in, and uh, there's a very hot trend right now in education. That is, teachers are best when they're just facilitators to student learning. They just hang back, and they let the students explore, and they let the students discover and do their own things, and they don't really interfere that much. They just kind of Watch and maybe nudge here and there, and and I don't know what anyone else thinks about that. But every time I listened to it, every time I heard that thought, I I something inside me went yeah just a little bit. That may be very well for public school classes, but in a church setting or in a family setting, when you have been called by God to teach and preach, I don't think that calling is to be a simple facilitator of discussion. Now, don't get me wrong. Discussion is important. Meaningful, vibrant discussion is important. It's an important tool to a meaningful end. But there is a responsibility on the teacher to bring to that discussion passion, study, knowledge, um, effective questions, testimony, all of that. As much as we need to put responsibility on the learner, there needs to be responsibility on the teacher.
1: I think what we mentioned last week was the flip side of that, that you have very capable learners, is that there needs to be some guidance. Like you were saying, that, that calling that you've been given, that um, your position, your ministry, so to speak, in in who you are, in who you're teaching, in the experiences that you have that are equally as valuable um, in teaching this. We believe that we're called of God when we have these opportunities and you are there to lead and guide.
0: Um, We'll put this talk in our show notes this week. It is one of my, last week we mentioned one of my all-time favorite talks on education. This week is another one of my all-time favorite talks, not specifically about education, but on the relationship between uh, leaders of youth and youth. We've had a lot of questions on the podcast of how do I teach my my Sunday school class, my youth Sunday school class, how do I get them engaged, et cetera. Mostly
1: youth. Yeah. That's probably the most... Commonly asked. So if
0: you want to talk to read, this is the one I would recommend you read and frame and study and just live because it's awesome. Um, I'm going to try not to read all of it, but that's really hard because I love it so much. It's from Victor L. Brown. It's from 1975. And it's called The Vision of the Aaronic Priesthood. It was given in a priesthood session. So it's directed to men and to young men. However, he does preface it by saying these principles apply to young women as well. So you're going to hear Aaronic Priesthood. But every time you hear that, you just think your students your teenagers your children whatever it is he says this uh, brethren and sisters sometimes ironic priesthood work is misdirected sometimes when leaders see young men losing interest in the church they redouble their attempts to devise major events week after week including super activities teenage parties and visits to exotic places hoping thereby to compete with school activities clubs or television for the attention of our youth they may let the priests and the teachers play basketball every activity for lack of other alternatives or because that is what some youth say they prefer. These leaders lacking vision do not ask youth to give themselves or inconvenience themselves for fear of losing them. Entertaining activities are what our young people want, some leaders seem to think, and we have to give them what they want if they're going if we're going to keep them active. Even though young people may attend such activities for a time, they experience no conversion through them, often consider it no special honor to hold the priesthood, and then move into adulthood immature and poorly prepared for service to the church and mankind. Um, He gives a paragraph on although there's nothing wrong with these activities, he says this, and this is the line that chills me every time. He says... When this happens, the youth may begin to think that the Church exists to indulge their whims and wishes, and that they should evaluate the Church by the yardstick of self-indulgence. And if they think this way, they may find the world's enticements more daring and exciting than any we can properly provide. Then, because we have imitated the world, we lose them to the world. The far better approach, Bishop Brown mentions, is to give these ironic priesthood holders and young women and anyone that you're teaching something they can't get anywhere else. Which means you've got to be on your A-game when you're teaching. You have to have studied the block of Scripture and have a passion for it. You have to bring that passion and that fire to class. You have to know why this matters and be able to direct the youth in discovering that for themselves. You have to have a fiery testimony and, and believe in their ability to study, but also in your ability to teach. It's not to say that you stand and lecture at them because no one wants to be lectured at. It's not to say that you ignore them as capable learners, but it is to say that you don't ignore your responsibility as a capable, called, and divinely inspired teacher.
1: Turning that into practical terms, we can say this in a few different ways. Maybe you're not feeling like you're (laughs) passionate about something that you're teaching, or maybe you don't really know how to... You know, right now we have this balancing act of like we want to let our youth teach in the classrooms and give them that responsibility, but we also are called to be their leaders. Mm -hmm. And so that balancing act of studying the material and knowing the scriptures and being confident, like you're saying, Zach, but also um, give them those nudges to lead. It's Mm -hmm. that constant balancing act in how can I do that? But I really, I really, really deeply believe which is why we're doing this, that when you feel the scriptures inside your heart, um, those will come. The thing that we can offer the students is the spirit. Mm-hmm. It's the spirit of God in our classrooms, the spirit that comes from scripture mm-hmm. study, the spirit that comes from being a teacher that you are called to be and believing that you're the teacher that these kids need.
2: Yeah.
0: So whatever that means for you, act on it, do it. It's changed Every, almost everything I do when I'm with the youth, it changes the way that I structure any program related to the youth. We don't give them, I don't know, cheese whiz when we can give them the finest cheeses that there are out there. That's a really poor analogy. It but is because
1: some of us like some, cheese whiz. Yeah,
0: <laughs> anyway, hopefully that helps. All right. For our study this week, this is John chapters two through four. And I want to start with this. I, um... I like asking this question to students um, when I'm teaching this block or teaching in these chapters because I think it's kind of provocative. And so I'll just put true or false on the board and say, all right, tell me true or false. As long as I am a good person, I can go to heaven. Now, the reason that's a tricky question is because it doesn't seem like there's an obvious answer, even though it seems like there's an obvious answer. So we sense in that that there's more to going to heaven than just being a good person. However, we also know or we also sense that there's something that I need to do to go to heaven. And this right here is the crux of a very big debate in Christianity in general. And it's one that we kind of pick our battle with Christianity, with with our other Christian brothers and sisters quite a bit. In fact,
1: it's probably the first thing that, I mean, as far as you know, one of the Mormons, first things that we get attacked on. That's yeah. what people say oh, you don't. The grace and works debate, right?
0: In fact, we had a comment on our iTunes uh, from someone that brought this up. They said, you know, nice that Mormons are trying their hand at Bible study. Um, Too bad that you don't believe in grace. Too bad you believe that you're saved by works. And then that person quoted the Book of Mormon, saved by grace after all we can do. So this is a really tricky topic. Are we saved because God is good and Jesus is good and they and Jesus performed an atonement and saved us? Are we saved because of that? Or are we saved because we're obedient and we follow commandments and we have necessary ordinances that prepare us for, for life in the kingdom of God? And our sense is, well, it's both. But that just seems to be a really tricky question or a really tricky answer to give. Yeah. And so the study this week actually... Um, is able to harmonize these two ideas really well together. Um, and it does it in a way that I think makes sense and, and illustrates what those two different parts mean and how they affect impact and affect us.
1: Because Jesus teaches it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that helps, right?
0: So I'm going to dive into John chapter 3 to set this up, and then we're each uh, going to take a little portion here. So in John chapter 3, very well-known story, Nicodemus comes to the Savior by night. He's a Pharisee. And he asks, uh, approaches the Savior and recognizes that he's a teacher from God. And then Jesus gives him that sermon on, unless you're born by water and born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And there's a whole long sermon that follows, which you're going to study and have an incredible experience with. But what I want to point to is just the beginning part. Nicodemus is a good man. He's a good person. In John chapter 7, he defends Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. In John chapter 19, he anoints the body of Christ. Nicodemus is a good person, and you sense that even from the first couple of verses. You you can almost, this is one of those places where you can sense his personality, you can sense his sincerity. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, Jesus tells him these verses, this is verses three through six. Jesus answered and said unto him, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered and said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In essence, what Jesus is telling him is, Nicodemus, you're a good man, but unless you are born of water and of the Spirit, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. In fact, in verse 3, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Now, I know the easy answer to this is we point to it and we say, oh, Jesus is teaching that we need to get baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But that's not what he says. That's, I think, an appropriate application of these verses. But Jesus doesn't say you need to be baptized and get the gift of the Holy Ghost. He says deliberately twice, you need to be born again, which signifies change. In other words, Nicodemus comes to him as a good man. And Jesus says, being a good man is not enough. Nicodemus, in order to see the kingdom of God, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be changed. You need to become something new and something different. Now that has to be balanced with the truth that Jesus Christ purchased our right, our inheritance in the celestial kingdom. He did it all. It wasn't us 10%. He 90%. He did 100%. If you want to go back and listen to one of our very first episodes, episode nine in the Book of Mormon, we dive into the lesson, uh, the whole topic of grace and kind of pull it apart and talk about it. But suffice it to say, Grace is a balancing principle to this idea of change. So what we want to do this episode is look at a couple of stories here in John chapters 2 through 4 where people change or where Jesus changes something and learn what he does to change us and what we can do to accept that change and change ourselves.
1: You guys, there is no better place to start this. Then with what we get to study here today, and we're going to start in John chapter 2, and I'm just going to start reading here in verse 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And we know the rest of the story. There are six water pots. He tells the servants to fill them with water. And the miracle takes pa- place. The water is turned to wine. And in verse 9, When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. So this isn't just okay wine. This is what they're calling the best wine. Wow, you saved this to the end. That is an incredible story. What I want to focus on is what we read in verse 5. His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. You guys, there is so much power in that statement. And I love, I love to think of this verse. Whatever God says, let's do it. I have had the experience a couple times. And one that comes to mind specifically is there was a time that I was really praying for something. I really wanted guidance in a certain direction. And I kept getting these little thoughts in my head of things that were like, I should do that or I should write this or whatever it was. And I didn't do anything about it. But finally, I took this prompting seriously. Something came to my head at a really random place. And what's funny is I remember exactly where I was. That's one of those spiritual experiences Mm. where you can like feel it again. And I remember thinking, I need to write this down. So I'm really technical and I went to my phone and sent myself a text message. (laughs) So I wrote this specific thing down And as I was writing it, I had like three more things come to my mind that I hadn't written down the previous weeks. Now that's a small example, but sometimes the small ones can be really powerful. For me, that was exactly this. I am going to do what comes to my head and I'm going to take it seriously and write it down. And he's going to give me more and he's going to show me more. He's going to Bring more miracles. I don't know where a lot of those thoughts that I wrote down that day came. But what I do know is that someone was telling me something. God was telling me something to do. And I'm going to take it seriously. And he is going to turn my thoughts into something better and bigger. Whatever he says, do it. And there is a beautiful talk by Elder Clayton. It is titled this Whatsoever He Saith Unto You Do It April twenty We're going to have him teach us a little bit more about this principle because he says it so beautifully Go listen to the rest of the talk We'll link it in our show notes but here is a little bit from him
3: When we decide to do whatsoever God saith unto us we earnestly commit to align our everyday behavior with God's will Such simple acts of faith as studying the scriptures daily, fasting regularly, and praying with real intent deepen our well of spiritual capacity to meet the demands of mortality. Over time, simple habits of belief lead to miraculous results. They transform our faith from a seedling into a dynamic power for good in our lives. Then, when challenges come our way, our rootedness in Christ provides steadfastness for our souls. God shores up our weaknesses, increases our joys, and causes all things to work together for our good.
0: You know, I'm looking at the story in kind of a new light, just framed in this uh, grace and works way. I love the truth here that Jesus changes the wine. He does the work. He does the miracle. There is nothing that the servants do in any way, big or small, that makes that water anything like wine at all. Jesus does the miracle. However, he asks them or he instructs them as he performs this miracle, they become a part of it. And so their actions don't perform the miracle. Their actions don't make anything happen. But their action is necessary for them to be involved. And I love that relationship because I feel like he does that with us. I, I had a friend a couple of years ago that said, really, if God wanted to, he could do all of his work on his own. Isn't it wonderful that he lets us participate for our own growth and for our own benefit? He could do it all if he wanted. But he wants us to be involved so that we can grow and so that we can become more like him so that we can change
1: the example that i gave is kind of that because it wasn't like that was anything big in the grand scheme of things Hmm. but for me what it proved to me was that god can work in me i can feel his power inside of me and that has led me to take more confidence when I have small promptings come to me and to take action on those. And so sometimes it's just that training ground that he uses for us to say, look, I can change you even in small ways. Look at these bigger ways and these bigger things that you can do. So for I can y- trust you and you can trust me. So
0: for you, this story teaches changes about little things you do. Like right. Like we've had repeated, repeated little things that that change you, that become habits, that become part of who you are. I like that. Um... I looked at John chapter four, it's all, this has been one of my favorite stories for a long time uh, because I love uh, the way that Jesus teaches the woman at the well and the things that happened to her. So um, if you'll follow quickly with me, when Jesus first, first meets this woman at the well, she calls him in verse nine, a Jew. That's the first thing that she notices about him. Maybe she can tell by his accent or by his skin color or whatever. Uh, She knows that he's a Jew. However, two verses later, after he says just one thing to her in verse 10, in verse 11, she doesn't call him a Jew anymore. It says, the woman said to him, sir, Um, something in what Jesus has taught her has changed her at least a little bit from seeing him as an outsider. She's a Samaritan and he's a Jew as an outsider to now someone that should be respected, she repeats that again in verse fifteen, and then we get to verse nineteen, and now her estimation of him has um, has grown even more, and she says, "Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet." She's changed again; her understanding of who he is has been elevated even more. Of course, the highlight of the whole story is at the end, when she says, "Tell me who this Messiah is, that I can worship him." Jesus says, "I that speak unto thee am He." And then one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, verse 28, the woman then left her water pot. That thing that was so important to her, the thing that she was focused on, the whole point of her being there, she left behind. Talk about a change, a whole change of focus, a whole change of priorities. The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did is not this, the Christ. In just 20 verses, Jesus is able to change this woman from calling him a Jew to seeing him as the Christ. And I love that because I think he does the same thing to us. He changes the way that we view him. The more that we study scriptures, the more that we build a relationship with him through service or through prayer or whatever, we start to see him not just as this Messiah or this Christ that used to be, but as our Messiah and our Christ, this one that knows everything that we've done. Um, and I think he can change, as we talked about in previous episodes, the way that we view other people and, and the way that we view ourselves. I
1: was going to say that really relates back to some of the discussions we've had in those last two episodes of really he allows us to see who we are mm-hmm. and see ourselves in a better light.
0: Um, I also loved in the story, I, I focused, rightly so, on what the Savior does. Um but I, I have never, until this last time reading through, focused specifically on the, what the woman does to allow this change to happen. She's very open with him and very honest about herself, her intentions, her view, her thought. There's no there's no pretense there. There's no guile there. Um, he even commends her for speaking openly to him about her husband. Bring your husband. I have no husband. He tells her, yeah, you don't have a husband. You've had seven men and none of them have been your husband. And And so I love this, this, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I just love the sense that she's honest with him. And in my experience, one of the hardest things about changing is uh, becoming born again, if you will, um, is, is being honest about my current state. If I think that there's no need for change, or if I talk about there's there's no need for change if i'm if I'm prideful about what I am, if I don't acknowledge my faults, then I'm not willing to be born again. I'm not willing to become something new if I think I'm already this, and so i I, I think that's an important component of allowing ourselves to change and to be born again.
1: This is a beautiful story, the story of her that quick evolution of what happens, and the story continues. She says, you read that verse, come and see a man. So she goes out and she tells everyone about this after she leaves her pot. And then we see verse 39. Many Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman because she went and told, because she felt this change. This really relates back to our study tip of Mm -hmm. being that that capable teacher. Experience that change within your heart so that you you can't help but go and tell people and tell them to come and see, Mm -hmm. come and see. Mm -hmm. And then the people meet the Savior, they have the chance to come and see him, and they come back to the woman and they say, verse 42, now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world.
0: You know, this is probably sounding repetitive because I feel like the last couple of episodes have been centered around this idea of change and us seeing christ more clearly and him seeing us seeing ourselves more clearly and then changing and becoming more like that that's what
1: it is that's what he is i think
0: that's the gospel and i think it's interesting that these people what
1: it is to be born again yeah
0: these people come to know christ as they're changed to know him is to be changed by him and we can only know him once we're changed by him i wonder if nicodemus defends christ in front of the sanhedrin because he has been changed or he's had that changing experience and for us to have that testimony i think relies on that same experience that we change that we become born again that's how grace and works works together he saves us he does all the work 100% of it he already did it we don't do anything to earn heaven however because of his price that he paid because of his sacrifice because of everything he's done for us he looks at us and he says i want you to change i paid for you to have this chance now i want you to change we want to end this episode. This last week, we had a really cool experience of having uh, Brad Wilcox come to our seminary and have a morning side with our students. And it was awesome. The students loved it. And, and if you've ever heard Brother Wilcox speak before, you know he's just filled with passion and testimony. Well, in preparing our students for that, we played for them this little video clip from Brother Wilcox. Um, if you've listened to him talk about grace before, you know this is something he's very passionate about. And I love the way that he explains it. And so we'll end our episode with this clip, and then we'll sign off
2: price arrangement with us is similar to a mom providing music lessons for her child. Mom pays the piano teacher. Because mom pays the debt in full, she can turn to her child and ask for something. Practice. Does the child's practice pay the piano teacher? No. Well, does the child's practice repay mom for paying the piano teacher? No. Practicing is how the child shows appreciation for mom's incredible gift. It is how he takes advantage of the amazing opportunity mom is giving him to live his life at a higher level. Mom's joy is not found in getting repaid, but in seeing her gift used, seeing her child improve. And so she continues to call for practice, 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 But this practice has a different purpose than punishment or payment. Its purpose is change. Christ's grace is sufficient to help us in that process. Brother Wilcox, I mean, don't you realize how hard practice is? I mean, I'm just not very good at the piano. I hit a lot of wrong notes, and it takes me forever to get it right. Now wait, isn't that all part of the learning process? When a young pianist hits a wrong note, we don't say he is not worthy to keep practicing. We don't expect him to be flawless. We just expect him to keep trying. Perfection may be his ultimate goal, but for now, we can be content with progress in the right direction.
1: Thank you for studying with us in these awesome chapters, John chapter 2 chapters 2 through 4. We hope you enjoyed your we hope you enjoyed the study. We hope you enjoy your own study and we will be back next week.